0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prasanthi Nilayam. As I announced last time, Dharma being an infinite subject, one could talk about it as long as one likes. However, I would like to bring the current series to an end for a variety of reasons. That's what I told you last time and that exactly is what I shall be doing in this talk. Now, before I go further, I would like you to hear a Telugu poem or Padhyam as Swami refers to it.
1: Ye prema shakti che Kundagatiruguchundu Ye ఏ shakti yella nakshatralu Nela rala ka Ye prema ये प्रेम शक्तिचे इरेड लोकालू गाली देवडू सुरिटिलो विसरे आ महा प्रेम शक्तिये आत्म शक्ति अद्भुत अनंत अद्वितीय मगु शक्ति Brahma and Bandamilla. Emaha Shrushti and Prema Mayame. Emaha Shrushti and Prema Mayame. Prema Mayame.
0: That recitation you just heard was done by Sai Krishna for studio. I should mention that Sai Krishna is one of Swami's students and he joined our staff last year. He is a good singer and is a part of the Mandir Bhajan team. The meaning of the Padhyam saying for you just now by Sai Krishna is as follows. That power of love which makes the earth to rotate though lacking an axle. That power of love which allows the stars to remain fixed in the sky without falling. That power of love that prevents the mighty oceans from inundating the earth. That power of love that causes cool breeze to blow all across the globe. That power of love is verily the power of the Atma. Power that is wonderful, infinite, incomparable and all-pervasive. Indeed, the whole of creation is saturated with that divine power of love. Now, why did I present this particular padyam when there are so many to choose from? There are two reasons for this. The first is that Swami started His recent Guru Purnima discourse with this particular padyam. Incidentally, Swami started His Guru Purnima discourse of 2000 with the same poem. The second and more important reason for drawing attention to this padyam is for stressing the fact that dharma and prema go hand in hand. One cannot be thought of as being separate from the other. To use the language of mathematics, the topology of basic human values is a circle. Consider a circle. One could start anywhere on the circumference, go around and come back to the starting point. That is what happens with the value set, satya, dharma, shanti, prema, Ahimsa, Daya, Chama, and so on. They are all looped together in some kind of a circular fashion. That is to say, if one starts with satya, assuming that to be the primary value, then all the others could be seen as the derivatives of satya. One might as well start with prema, in which case, satya etc. become derivatives. You might wonder what on earth I mean by that. In a sense, this talk would attempt to answer that very question. Now why on earth am I trying to wind up my series in this unorthodox fashion, when this series was supposed to be all about dharma? Well, I am doing that for an obvious reason, which is that Swami's focus is almost invariably on prema. I therefore felt it was imperative to explain that when one stresses prema, dharma and satya come automatically as a package deal. Incidentally, one reason I am doing this is because the trusteeship concept that I referred to earlier cannot ever be implemented. Unless people are suffused with the feeling of prema. I do hope at least some of you would recall the basic idea of universal trusteeship concerning which I have spoken many times earlier. In today's highly interconnected world, if humanity is to survive, then pure love has to form the basis and trusteeship has to be made the practical tool for survival. This two-tier approach would be the best way of adhering to Dharma in this day and age. I am sure you might be wondering why if Dharma is timeless and goes back to very old times, we should do something that was not done in the days of Sri Rama and Krishna. Is not what was good in those times good now? Why do we give up tried and tested methods of old? The answer to this is really simple. Take a simple thing like travel. People travel in the good old days and they do so now also. However, we cannot always stick to the same mode of travel. That's obvious, is it not? For example, supposing you are coming to Puttaparthi in say 1948, which was barely 60 years ago. One had to take a rather circuitous route. One had to come from say Bangalore to Penukunda by train then take a jet car or a horse drawn carriage from Penukunda Railway Station to the center of the town where there was a bus stand. There, one had to take an old battered bus and ride for hours to Bukapatnam, which was just a few kilometers away. And there in Bukapatnam, one switched over to a bullock cart. One then had to ride in the bullock cart with family and luggage for a couple of hours until one slowly made one's way to the village of Karnataka Nagepalli You may not know where that village is, but actually it's located on the Chitravati River, just opposite Puttaparthi. If you look from Puttaparthi uh, towards the east, there is Karnataka Nagyapalli. That was where one had to cross the river, since the poor bulls pulling the cart could not drag a cart full of people and luggage. So the passengers would get down and walk on sand, And wade through the water. There was often water in those days. And this is the way they crossed the river. All along the bullock cart would come alongside. And that was how one reached this place. God lived here. God in human form that is. But in all other respects. This village was a textbook case of what is usually referred to as a God forsaken village. Meaning it was remote, poor and utterly lacking in facilities that was then what happens now people fly in from Los Angeles to Singapore there they change to another plane flying from Singapore to Bangalore and these days they land in the new Bangalore airport that is closer to Puttapati than the previous one once one gets into a taxi at the Bangalore airport after clearing customs and all that in about two and a half hours or three hours at the most one is at the ashram doorstep Imagine that, coming from Los Angeles to Ashram in just less than 24 hours. What I am trying to say is that while the principle remains invariant, the methodology would have to adapt to changes. This of course is well known, but in this particular case, the change is non-trivial,
1: which is why I am laboring on the point a bit more than necessary. Okay,
0: why trusteeship? Where does Prema come into all this? And how are all these related to adherence to Dharma? And what is this change I am talking about? I guess I have to explain all those things. Let me start with the following quote, which redefines Dharma for us. This, by the way, was globally distributed by Asai Inspire Service just recently. And you can see how useful these pearls of advice are. Let's first hear the quote. Quote. We must recognize the meaning of the word dharma. We think doing our so-called normal duty is what dharma is all about. This is not so. To do something that will give pleasure and happiness to all is our real dharma. Whatsoever we do should not cause any curtailment of the freedom which others enjoy. We should ensure that we do not do those acts that we consider bad in others. We should also see how others are being respected and engage only in those acts that can be regarded as respectful. End of quote. The above quote, which is from a discourse delivered in 1977, makes it very clear that dharmic action is that which benefits all. And by all, we meet not only all human beings, but indeed all beings. Humans have no right to feel that they are superior, and that what is beneficial for them is necessarily good for other species. Just as individuals, we are not supposed to have any feelings of interest or supra as Swami calls it. So also, the human race as a whole must eschew this feeling. That is a mandatory condition or sine qua non for implementing trusteeship. Maybe I should spend a few moments pulling together the various ideas I have been presenting till now. Firstly, I quoted a poem of Swami which is all about the power of pure love, and how the whole of creation is suffused with this pure love. Next, I pointed out that if pure love manifests, then satya and dharma also manifest, for these two are embedded in love. That is to say, action that lacks pure love cannot be wholly in accord with satya and dharma. After that, I drew attention to the fact that for action to be truly dharmic, it must benefit all. From these three different points I have made thus far, we can conclude that all actions must be based on pure love. Two, every such action would definitely help and benefit at least some and when properly planned could even benefit all. Three, by its very nature, trusteeship implies action for and on behalf of the community at large. Therefore, trusteeship becomes the preferred vehicle for translating pure love into action. Four. Thus, when pure love and trusteeship are interwoven, actions automatically become dharmic. I do hope you have caught on to the idea, and assuming you have, let me proceed further. I would like at this point to stress that when we consider dharma and its practical implications, the implications today are quite different from what they were, say, 2000 years ago. There are two differences between those times and the present time. Firstly, the population today is very much higher than it was centuries ago. And secondly, there is heavy connectivity all across the globe in various ways, which also adds to the complication. Thanks to these two factors, everyone everywhere is very much likely to be affected by something somewhere. Let me give you an example. Say there is a disruption of oil production in Nigeria, which by the way is the biggest oil producer in Africa. Immediately, thanks to this disruption, the price of crude oil increases on the global market, which in turn causes petrol price to increase almost everywhere. Similarly, If the villages in, say, Thailand or Vietnam who breed chicken are careless and bird flu breaks out there in Thailand and Vietnam, that bird flu could well spread to many places all over the world. This means that whether one likes it or not, everyone is a stakeholder. Stakeholder in the welfare of humanity as a whole. The question now is whether all of us which means you and me, are prepared to play an active role as a stakeholder or be merely passive and even helpless spectators, while fringe minorities that are powerful confront each other, contributing to tension in many ways. Let me explain myself. Consider any place where there is an insurgency. Insurgency means there is a conflict, in fact a violent conflict. On one side there are insurgents who are armed and engage in acts that are called acts of terrorism. On the other side there is an armed governmental force which could be the army itself or some kind of a paramilitary force. The military uses its power like a sledgehammer and inflicts what is claimed to be heavy damage. For their part the insurgents too inflict a lot of damage by quite violent means that include suicide bombers. Lots of casualties on both sides. Lots of expenditure, waste of money and so on. And the conflicts drag on and on. We see this kind of situation in so many places, including in many places in India itself, which is very unfortunate and tragic. While all this is going on, a majority of people are caught in between. Like in a vice. They watch silently, passively and helplessly they form what might be called the silent majority, a phrase we owe to Lyndon Johnson, who used it, I believe, at the time of the Vietnam War. I have made a reference to all this for a very important reason. I have pointed out on many occasions, most of the problems humanity faces today, including that of insurgency, arise in some manner or the other due to poverty of love. That means... To get rid of the problem, what is needed is an emphatic return to a regime of satya, dharma and prema. And that cannot happen if you all sit and merely watch silently. Consider the issue of corruption. People say there is a lot of corruption in India. Yes, there is. Far more than used to be 60 years ago, when India was in fact much poorer. What has happened since then? particularly in recent times, is that our adherence to moral values has weakened substantially. The Western countries complain of corruption in India, Africa and many other countries. If you look carefully in all these cases, there is a very large income gap. In every country where corruption is rampant, a few people have plenty of money and many have Quite a lot to spend on things that are really not vital necessities. But a very large number of people have hardly enough to eat. Meanwhile, and we see this very glaringly in India, TV, which has become ubiquitous, is not only constantly offering saturation advertisement for all kinds of consumer goods, but is also parading the luxurious lifestyles of the rich and the famous. All the time. So, what happens? people begin to want all sorts of things. And to encourage people to have the craving for consuming, banks compete with each other to offer loans on so-called favorable terms, even as companies eagerly roll out everything from fridge to cars on what is termed easy monthly payments. Do you know, 35 years ago, you couldn't buy a fridge or a car unless you paid all the money down cash at the time of purchase. Today it's not so. You could pick up these things and go home without even paying a rupee. All kinds of schemes to do that. This is dangerous, but the silent majority fall for all this hook, line and sinker. Everything looks nice and rosy till suddenly one day the bottom falls out. And this has happened in America recently with very shocking consequences. The point I am making is that bribery, which let me stress is but one aspect of the entire gamut of corruption, thrives under the following conditions: one, where there is dire poverty with a large number of people not being able to get even the bare necessities of life two when while the essentials are not an issue, living becomes expensive due to factors created by market forces, when people are driven by market forces to live far beyond their means. Especially by reckless borrowing. In many poor countries, bribery exists due to the first of the three factors I mentioned just now. And it gets enhanced when a few top people openly abuse their positions and amass wealth. In India, bribery grew rapidly once more and more consumer goods began to be available. But were not affordable since the income level of a large percentage was low. As for living beyond means, This phenomenon has reared its ugly head in some countries, but not all. I am sure many of you already know this and must be wondering how it is connected with what I said earlier. This is an important point and I request you to pay careful attention now because that is the connection I am going to make. Firstly, bribery is only one aspect of corruption. Even here, while the poor clerk does demand bribes for actions he should routinely perform, and this is largely because he cannot make both ends meet. It is also a fact that even when bribes are not demanded, the corporate sector dangles attractive rewards for the sanction of permits or license or whatever they want, so that they can go out there and make money in plenty. In other words, when there is excessive bureaucracy and regulation, and this happened in the early years after independence in India, when we went over a socialist economy, everyone offered bribes even before they were asked for. They wanted something done, and the only way was to give money. Thus, bribery was referred to as speed money. In this case, bribery was in part a systemic phenomenon triggered by excessive regulation. What I am driving at is that when politicians in the West attack corruption, say in Africa, and threaten all kinds of sanctions, etc., they are like doctors who do a superficial analysis or diagnosis and jump to conclusions. One must, in all such situations, look at the entire picture. If one does that, one would find that there are bribe-takers because there are also those who offer bribes, even if not asked for. In turn, this is all due to many complex factors. For the moment, I shall leave this point where it is and move on. I would now like to look at the word corruption from a larger perspective. Yes, bribery is indeed one aspect of corruption. But go to the dictionary and you would find that the word corruption has a wider meaning. The mind of individuals can be corrupted by exposure, especially calculated and excessive exposure to undesirable things. Take a thing like violence and examine how much violence is shown in the movies and on TV. Argument, conflict and violence are also given a lot of prominence in the news, unless there are news scandals, of course. Thus, these days we hear much more about fights and controversies that go on in sports field, rather than about the game itself. Added to all this, even comic books and video games are full of violence. Just think about all this. We see this happening all the time. And in fact, this phenomenon is increasing. Not only that, society is beginning to see the consequences of all this in many ways. Everybody is busy arguing about it, but hardly anyone is doing anything about it. In fact, there is almost an air of resignation. People just throw up their hands as if to say, will not somebody do something All this is due entirely to the corruption of the mind by forces that live by exploiting and promoting human weakness. This is a dangerous phenomenon and promoted entirely by those connected to the market. Yet go and look for one prominent individual belonging to the corporate sector anywhere in the world. One prominent international agency like the World Bank or the IMF that complains and worries about the things I have called attention to. You will hardly find anyone as for the majority to which you and I belong, we choose to remain silent and suffer unnecessarily, I would say. People complain about the bribery aspect of corruption because it comes in the way of their speedy operations in the corporate sector, I mean. But if somebody's mega blockbuster eulogizes crime and indirectly promotes crime and violence, is that person going to be bothered about the adverse social impact? Talk to the movie producer and he would say, I give the people what they want. They, they don't have to come and see the movie. They could stay at home, but they don't. This is all double standard. And what does it say? It says that people behave like sheep, accepting the conditions that are created, as if they have little option but to follow. Where Dharma is concerned, we just cannot afford to be quitters. And that, by the way, is the main message of the Gita. A lot has been made of political freedom, democracy, etc. Dictatorships were attacked because there were regimes in which the minds of ordinary people were controlled. Unregulated markets, which is largely what we have now, do pretty much the same. Instead of the state doing it, that is to say controlling the minds of people, it is now the top people in the market who have taken charge. Do you realize how complex our lives have become and how much regulation is being called for us simply because more and more people are violating rules all the time even though they know they are wrong? Do you realize that when people start following dharma all this would be unnecessary because we would be regulating ourselves? You know, if for example people start being truly honest we can get rid of so much of our anti-corruption establishment which is pretty huge. Yes, there are indeed huge benefits to be reaped if we choose to abide by Dharma. And for that, Prema is the starting point. I am sure I do not have to belabor the point. Okay, let me go back to the question. Why has all the present mess happened? Who allowed it? How can this be stopped? The answer to all this is that we, the majority stakeholders, have permitted this. How? How? by becoming the silent majority and abdicating our ability to raise our voices. Making an important point recently, Al Gore, the former Vice President of America, more famous and justly so for his tireless campaign to sensitize one and all about global warming, said that right now there is no political will to pass the legislations needed for massively switching over to renewable energy sources thus moving away from fossil fuels. Al Gore then said that legislators can be persuaded only when ordinary people combine overwhelmingly and exert pressure on decision makers to change their ways and perspective. This is an important point and I would like to stress that as much as I can. Today, wherever we look, Adharma appears to be gaining ground. That is happening because we are allowing that to happen. Why? Because we want to be non-involved. Because we are playing the role of silent majority. You know, dharma is too important to be left to fend for itself. It is our duty to protect dharma and unless we do so, we cannot expect dharma to protect us when the need arises. We just cannot play a passive role by saying that God is here to, to take care of it all. If there is one thing that I have been constantly stressing is that God is here in human form not to clean up the mess we have created, but to help us to do that. No, we cannot pass the buck to the avatar. The buck stops with us and all we can expect from the avatar is support, help and liberal guidance. God did that earlier when he came as Krishna. And currently is more than willing to help us. In fact, He is all the time asking us to get started. Swami is telling us that Prema is the cure-all for this season. The question is, are we ready? Are we even willing? Indeed, are we even listening to what He says? I leave you with those questions. As I mentioned earlier, one can go on and on talking about Dharma. However, that is not so meaningful as getting a few basics straight and doing all we can to adhere as best as we can to Dharma in the manner that Swami expects us to. With those words, I would like to bring this series to a close and I thank you all for a patient hearing. Before I end, I have a small appeal to make. Please stay tuned to the program that follows. I believe that program is very relevant to what I have said just now. And when you hear it, I am sure you would fully agree with me. Thank you once again and Jai Ram.